Hello and welcome. You've joined Watch It Baptist Church online. This is our YouTube channel. We're a Christian church, a Baptist church uh, that's based in Watch It, but serving a community that's a bit wider than that. It's good to have you with us. My name's Mike, Mike Sherbin. I'm the pastor of WBC. And we're looking for, oh, I've lost count of how many times now, but this is the next in our series looking at the letter that James wrote to Christians uh, in the early days of the church. We're in James 2 and we're reading from verse 14 to the end of the chapter and we'll be having a think about why, uh, what it is that James is saying and how we might understand it and what difference it might make in our day-to-day lives. I'm going to pray and I'm going to read those verses. I'll be reading from the NIV, but let's pray first. Lord, we put ourselves under your care. We trust that you have good things to tell us, things that are good for us to hear even if they're not always easy to hear. And we ask that we would be uh, encouraged and and built in confidence, not just by what you have to say to us through your word, but also through the way in which we talk to each other about it too. And we help, we ask for your help that we would do that. Amen. Right, James 2, starting at verse 14 and going to the end of the chapter. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made by complete by what he did and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without deeds is dead this is for many people a favorite passage and for others a tricky one it has been the cause of much toing and throwing uh, among christian thinkers for many years perhaps one of the most famous places where that occurs is in the life of martin luther a guy who Uh, had a lot to do with triggering the Protestant Reformation in Europe in the 1500s. And he had, he felt it was challenging, called it a right story epistle, partly because he was at great pains to demonstrate to disciples, to believers, that they did not need to earn their way to salvation, but rather they had it offered to them by grace, by, by the gift of a good God wanting to give good things. 
And so for him, there was a real challenge in then having a bit of uh, the Bible that talks about the importance of doing, because it might confuse people. Also, he felt that while other letters in the New Testament presented uh, a kind of straight up and down idea of, of how the good news of Jesus works, James doesn't so much. And so he found that challenging too. But he did write about it and found lots of it very helpful. So it wasn't that he wrote it off. It's just that he had issues with how he read it. But it, that has led to a whole bunch of to and fro among Christians for hundreds of years about how this passage works and what it tells us about what Jesus expects of us. It feels very much to me that what James is wanting his audience to hear is that there is a risk or even a gap that he needs to challenge. And that gap is described as like a, like a space between people who believe and people who do. Now, one of the best things about James is that what we can find is that as we read, um, after, after we've read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' uh, teaching in Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7, we follow that by reading James, we find a lot of it follows the same themes. And so you can see it's very much a book that emphasises Jesus' teaching. You can also see that at the end of Matthew, Jesus points out that one of the key things about being a disciple is being obedient. Obedient specifically to what Jesus commands, but obedience in general to God and who he is. So, James is quite faithful in reproducing or re-emphasising or reflecting on what Jesus has said about how disciples do things. There is, in fact, quite a lot of writing all the way through the New Testament about the importance of following up your belief with something of the way that you live. Now, James has already talked about this in chapter one. He talks about how we, uh, we as disciples shouldn't just listen uh, to what God has to say, we should then act on it as, to, as well. You, you do what it says. You don't just listen, you do what it says. And so in lots of ways, he's, he's continuing a theme that he's already run with here. And I think the, one of the better ways to describe it is, is in terms of ethics. Now, that's not me having a lisp while talking about a county just east of London. It is about a concept of ethical living. So all of us have ethics. We have um, ways in which we choose to live based on beliefs. E ethics means sort of turning your belief into action or how your, act how your belief shapes your action. So if you have um, a good work ethic, it means that you believe it's important to work hard and so the way you live reflects that. So ethics comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Lots of philosophers have written entire books about ethics. And really, they are about how you take a moral standpoint or a worldview uh, or a perspective, a window on how you see the world and how you live in a way that chimes with that, that is in harmony you're doing with your thinking. So what I think what James is doing here is saying there is this danger that, that a gap opens up between what you say you believe and how you actually live. Now, we've already talked in this sequence about the challenge that Christians have with a thing called functional atheism. Sorry about that, something flew straight into my mouth. So functional atheism is where we say, uh, no matter what we say about what we believe, the way we behave 
um, suggests that God is not present or is not interested. And so in functional atheism, what we do, uh, if we are saying claim to be Christians but we're functionally atheists, we say, I believe that God will always be there for me and provide for me. And then we build up um, sort of like, like squirrels bury nuts. You know, we, we provide ourselves with little bits of um, backup plan, little bits of uh, supporting infrastructure for our lives, just in case God doesn't come through. And perhaps functional atheism is something James is aware of when he's talking here. He's saying, ethically, are you really following through with what you say you believe? It might even be said to go a little bit further. There was one commentator I was reading in relation to this, which, by the way, was a, a talk prepared uh, with a roundtable setting. So three of us got together and talked through our understanding of this and how we might understand what it means and challenge each other's thinking. Uh, and then I come away and present it this way. Uh, but I think we do, we really do have this sense of, uh, of James saying, come on then. Let's look at how one thing matches the other. Let's look at whether we're actually being obedient. Let's look at how our thinking and our doing might mesh together or not. How they might completely miss each other uh, and not share the same space. So I had a bit of a think about this and I thought it's a little bit like creating an alloy. Now an alloy is where you get two substances and you mix them together in order to create a single thing. So steel, for example, is an alloy. You get iron and you get carbon and you put them together uh, by heating both very high heat and then um, you mix them and then as they cool you get something that is stronger. Steel is stronger than iron would be because the carbon makes it so. But steel is a single substance that's made by blending two. That, I think, is part of how James wants his readers to understand what he's telling them. Your discipleship is an alloy. It's an alloy of what you think and what you do. And really, what you think and what you do is then described as faith. Because what um, James wants to say is that a faith, a belief system, a, a thinking process that doesn't express itself in doing is hollow. So it's not really faith at all. It's a dead thing. It's not a living thing. It's kind of got no substance to it. Now, why is he having to say this? Well, remember that earlier in the, in the letter, he does two things. One is that he talks about um, uh, favouritism. So presumably there's a challenge that some of his readers have with uh, allowing uh, grace to work selectively. Some people are, are more wor worthy of my kindness and my goodness than others are. And back before that, we have this idea of being double-minded, kind of trying to occupy two stools at the same time, trying to sit in two places. And it's kind of saying it's possible to say that you believe something and tell people that you believe it and actually express that they might need it too, that they might need Jesus and the good news of the gospel, which is his, um, his coming as a person, as a fully human being, and his sacrificial death and his resurrection to defeat death, all of which means that sin is overcome and that we don't have to live in guilt and shame. We can instead live in freedom and that we can have a relationship with Jesus long term. So you might think all those things and be able to tell people, but if what they see you living out doesn't reflect it, then actually everything you said is kind of empty and dead and lifeless anyway. 
So this really is a continuation of James's earlier description of what it means to be a disciple. And remember, he's drawing very much on the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching of Jesus. So he says this alloy is what's needed, an alloy that is an ethical expression of what you believe, alloy that is called faith, because faith is the combination of what you think and what you do. I'm going to go a step further as well. Grace, I think James says, prompts an ethical response. You see, it's very easy for us uh, in, a, in a culture that is big on what you think and why you think it. It's big on understanding things and being able to rationalise them. Uh, a world where mystery isn't particularly welcomed and embraced, despite all the mystery that is, surrounds who God is and how he works. It's very easy for us to feel that most of what we're asked to do is have the right thinking, to believe the right stuff, to, to follow the right orthodoxy. Orthodoxy just means right thinking. And that we can end up really limiting uh, our understanding of what it means to be a Christian to those things, to, to the thinking part, to the understanding part, to having the right doctrine in the right way. And it even points to others whose lives and character might not be particularly Christ-like, but they have good doctrine and say they are a great person to listen to or they're a great person uh, who can help you understand what it means to be a Christian or, or just they're a very dependable teacher whatever it might be we get lots of this all over the internet yes I'm aware of the irony I'm now talking on the internet but it, it's very easy to do that uh, and to then reduce what a good Christian might stand for and actually what Jesus says and what James says and what Paul says and Peter and John and the others who write in the uh, in the New Testament is that without this complete sense without this kind of whole life view of what it means to follow Jesus actually you are being disruptive that you are causing damage now where does James go for his explanation of how this is supposed to work when well, he goes to the Old Testament he picks up two stories one about Abraham and one about Rahab Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho and we hear her story in, in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament um, there was an attempt by the Israelites as they come out of uh, their 40 years in the desert. There's an attempt by them to take control of the land they got into, of Canaan. And they reached Jericho and it had high walls and a strong garrison, lots of soldiers keeping it secure. And there was no way really to take the city. But Rahab uh, welcomed in some spies from Israel and gave them information that was going to help them and allowed them to slip away without being noticed. And as a result, Israel was able to take that city. And so she didn't just think there is something about these guys and the God they serve and the people they belong to that's different. But actually she went further than that. She said, I'm gonna put my faith in the God that they trust in. I'll put my faith in what they're trying to do. And she put it all on the line, if you like. You could say she went all in. She went all in for something that was going to completely change her life because she believed it was important enough to do something that would change her life. Now, how did her life change? Well, when that city fell, its walls collapsed, its people were killed. We can go on to ethical stuff about that another time. That's what happened. So she lost her home. 
she lost her way of life. She lost her community and her place in it. We don't know what happened to her next. She may have fled to a different city. She may have stayed with the people of Israel and travelled with them. We don't really know. What we do know is that she appears in the list of um, descendants, or ancestors rather, of ancestors of Jesus. So if you read Matthew 1, you'll find her name in there. And we know that she is mentioned in this context as somebody whose faith was real because it led her to put everything on the line, to change who she was, to live with the consequences. Now we're going to get on to Abraham in a moment, but this sense of, of really putting everything on the line, I think is something of what James is getting at. Because the danger is that we start looking at this, if I'm going to be obedient, then I need to do things. And we, we can easily then cross into, well, this, it, may, it may not be that my works give me salvation. It may be that not that, and, and it, this is generally the case, God does not need us to do anything to earn our place with him. We, we can't. It wouldn't be possible for us to do so. And James is in no way undoing that. But we could end up feeling that way. You know, being busy is the way to please God. And I, I don't think that's in any way what he's doing. What he's doing instead is challenging those who might feel that it is appropriate for them to sit back on a nice comfy cushion with their you know, cosy robe on or whatever it might be, study their scripture and never quite do anything. That's what he's trying to, to crowbar out. That's what he's trying to um, lever away from the the church's essential fabric it's like he's saying you've got some people among you who are able to explain god they know their theology they know their they really have a, a grasp of the understanding of how god works and what he thinks and what he does and why he does it you, while you've got these people and it might sound impressive the reality is that unless they're doing something it's kind of pointless and they're not helping you and they need to front up and do something and be willing to be all in and be willing to allow their lives to be different. They need to be able to sacrifice something of who they are and actually put their lives into action for the Jesus that they serve. I don't know if you remember, but there's a, there's a story in the Gospels, uh, there's accounts of Jesus' life, where there's a, a blind man and um, he encounters Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want to see. And we, rec we come to recognise that his wanting to see is not just, I'd like to have my sight back, please do a miracle for my health. There's also a recognition that his life is going to be radically altered. He's going to have to make his own way in the world. He will no longer be able to just tick over based on what people give him. He's going to have to then, he's been blind since birth, learn a trade. He's going to find a place in the community. He's going to have to contribute. He was willing to put it all on the line, to be all in for Jesus. And then we have a look at Abraham. Abraham uh, was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. This is verse 21, uh, the passage we were looking at before. So Abraham's faith which got him credited as righteous with his obedience to give up his son. Now there's all kinds of complications around this too. Did he ever actually think God was going to take his son away from him? After all, he did say on the way to the place where he was preparing 
Isaac as a sacrifice, he said to his servants who come with him that far, you stay here, we'll be back in a bit. So who knows? But whatever his perspective was on how this is going to work, he got to the point, Abraham did, of raising that knife over his son to kill him because he was determined to be obedient. And then God stopped him from going through with it all the way. Abraham was willing to sacrifice the most precious, arguably the most precious thing in his world. Because he recognised that his faith wasn't up to much unless he was prepared to go all the way in obedience. Right the way to the end zone, as the Americans and particularly those fans of American football might say. You're going to the end zone, you're willing to say, the things that are closest to me, the things that I would find it hardest to let go of, those are the things I'm willing to put under Jesus' control. And if he takes them away, my faith is such that I can, I can keep going because I keep going at his strength. I keep going with my faith, not just my head knowledge. Because I know he's been there in other situations where things have been taken away from me and he will continue to be there if other things are taken too. It's interesting, isn't it, that in both cases that James... Uh, uses as his case studies he talks about people who lose something in order to serve it's that sacrificial element and at some point a bit later on when we ask the questions we're going to be uh, we ask our three questions typically at the end of a, a session that's something that we're going to want to be looking at here's the thing if you love someone you do things for them uh, if you love someone, it doesn't mean you always like them, and it doesn't always mean that you want to do the things for them. If you love someone, it doesn't mean you're always automatically feeling motivated to do things for them. But this is an important thing about faith. It's not just based on how I feel, it's based on what I've promised to do. And for those of us who've decided to follow Jesus, we make those promises. We say, I'm, I'm going to turn my back on evil I'm going to pursue Jesus I'm going to make this thing my life I'm going to make this Jesus the thing that everything else in my life orbits around I will if you like tithe my time as well as my money and my other resources I will tithe my relationships I will give some part of the energy I give to them I will look to separate and say God I want you to get the best of this and we do that because we recognise that everything that's good has come from God anyway that his grace that his unmerited goodness to us and his mercy his desire not to give us what we do deserve when we've done it wrong that those things are the basis of our faith anyway the one that we put our trust in has to be one who's worthy of that trust. Can't afford to be functionally atheist. It just makes a mockery of what we say we think. I just want to finish with two little things and then we'll ask these questions. I want to think about whether it is possible in a church, in a community of faith, in a community of disciples of following Jesus, for some to bring a thinking 
and others to bring a doing. Because we know, don't we, that the body of Christ brings people together who have different strengths and different talents and different um, areas of passion and priority. And that that creates uh, a whole unit that's a really good thing. Paul talks about that in two separate places, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. The body is brought together. In fact, Jesus uh, refers to the church as the body of Christ. Does he do that? Somebody does. The body of Christ. We are the representation of Christ on the earth as a community of those who trust Jesus. But is it the case that some will bring just the thinking and others just the doing? And I wonder whether part of what James is saying is while some of you may be strong thinkers and others of you may be strong doers, there isn't space for some people to just sit back and do the thinking and not put that thinking to work how we put it to work is another question and maybe that's my final point before we come to an end and I pray and we, and we look at these questions together do we really know what we're like do we know ourselves well enough do we give do we give Jesus space to be in our thinking as we reflect on ourselves there's a thing called the examine uh, e-x-a-m-e-n which is a uh, a Christian discipline of reflecting on ourselves and God's place in our lives. Some people do the examine daily and it's a really, really helpful and healthy thing to do. Spiritually healthy thing to do. Do we know ourselves well enough to be able to say, those things that really get to me, I, I know why they do. Or, or that thing that's really important to me, I know where God features in that. Do we know ourselves well enough? Because I suspect James' teaching bounced off a whole bunch of people. But some would have really got it, and some will really not have done. And possibly the reason why they didn't, because they just didn't understand who they were. What made them tick? They didn't bring the Holy Spirit into their reflection on themselves. They didn't seek to grow on purpose in their spiritual life. And by not doing that... They made it almost impossible for their faith to be complete. That alloy couldn't be made because they weren't able to bring together the things that they think and the things that they do because they don't really understand themselves well enough to be able to bring those things together. I don't want to over-egg that point, but I think it is worth taking some time to reflect by ourselves and maybe with others' help on who we are and why we do what we do. Let's pray. And then we'll ask our three questions. Lord Jesus, we want to follow you with our whole selves. We want to be all in as we follow you. We want our faith to be an expression, not just a thinking thing. We want there to be some doing in our lives that is driven by, inspired by, uh, uplifted by your presence with us. Would you plant seeds in us that would germinate and become a harvest of, of Jesus in who we are, of the Holy Spirit's presence in our thinking and our doing. Amen. Okay, let's ask our three questions. You may have noticed in that prayer at the end of the uh, session that there was some noise in the background. I had some cyclists just coming down the path on the far side of the river there uh, and they were chatting away. But hopefully you still could hear what I was saying. So three questions for us.
Firstly is this, and I'll put it up on the screen nice and big. Uh, so if our faith includes an ethical response to grace, a doing response to all the goodness God has given us, how much time do we actually spend talking about how we live with those around us? How much time do we spend talking with those who share our faith about how we live? Question two is this, what is your Isaac? Or maybe what is your Jericho? Or maybe what is your blindness? What's your Isaac? What's your thing that you need to be willing to sacrifice, even if it feels just the most important thing in the world? Just want to let's draw on Peter's experience in Acts 10 as he meets a Gentile who wants to come to know Jesus and has to be reminded by the Spirit that things he think are just beyond the pale, just not okay, just outside acceptable, are absolutely blessed by God. What's your Isaac? What is it you need to be willing to sacrifice? Maybe God won't ask you to sacrifice it, but he may be asking you to be willing to do so. Question three, where do you hope to score brownie points? It's important that we ask this question because in the middle of this uh, look at what it means to follow Jesus in how we live, to, to build that alloy of, of believing and doing, we could easily end up getting legalistic about just doing lots. And, and that's not going to be healthy for us. It's not about doing loads. It's about allowing your faith to be something that gets its hands dirty. So where is it that you seek to gain brownie points? So that you can be aware that it's something that you try to do. It's probably going to be tempting for some of us to say, no, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm, I'm never, I never believe the things I do are going to you know, make me better than in God's eyes or in somebody else's eyes. Have a, good, have a good think about this. Maybe if you're in a group, just take a moment of quiet before you try to answer this one. Where do you try to score brownie points? And are there actually any brownie points to be scored? Okay then, thanks for being with us uh, for this session. Uh, we're going to continue through James uh, for a few more sessions yet. We've only done two chapters and there are five chapters to do. So I'm going to pray uh, and then uh, we can bless each other as we part company. Father God, we know that you are consistently good. That you are limited by your character so you can only do good, you can't do evil. And we pray that with that certainty underpinning us would you help us to just allow ourselves to rest in your arms to be the person you've called us and made us to be and now would you bless us as we seek to work this through and figure out how we apply it to our lives in jesus name we pray amen take care god bless i'll see you soon